All right, friends. If we could come back together again, please. Let me um, just speak real briefly. I saw several people out at the book table. A lot of what we're talking about today is in this book. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, what, what am I convinced of? I'm, I'm convinced that a lot of us are not entirely sure how we build relationships with our kids. Uh, for some of us, we just sort of think, okay, it, it's the big event. We take them out to this amazing meal or we go to this incredible vacation. Somehow that will generate relationship. Others of us are like, I don't know, it just sort of happens. Uh, I, I think what I'm trying to say is it happens every single day as you pay attention to what it is that actually comes out of your mouth. So that, that would be this one. Um, some of the things in here are from the book Loving Well. This was really helpful for me. Um, recognize it's, it's 15 chapters on different ways that God loves us. Um, helpful for me to realize that God never commands something from us that we've not already received from him. So he never tells us, forgive people, but you've never had an experience of what that's like, so figure it out. No, he forgives us, and the way that he forgives us then becomes the model for how we forgive others. He pursues us, and that becomes the way that we then pursue others. He serves us, that helps us understand what it means to serve others. That, that would be loving well. Um, and then the last one has absolutely nothing to do with today. Uh, <laughs> um, I was asked, w would you be willing to write a devotional on uh, assurance? And I'm like, no, that sounds incredibly dull. Uh, but then as I thought about it a little bit, I, I thought, ooh, I, I could approach it from this direction. Um, a lot of us, I think, could resonate with the sentence, I know God loves people in general. It's me I'm not so sure about. And so there's these words in our minds. It, it, you know, I, I, I keep failing in the same way. I've failed in horrible ways. I've done this and I've done that. I'm not growing. And so I try in here to address those different kinds of issues relatively quickly. Any of the books back there, uh, $10 each. I think, uh, I haven't checked today, but I think that beats Amazon um, significantly on some of them. Uh, the assurance book, I think you can find probably cheaper if you have a Christian book distributor account, but I think otherwise it, it's, it's, it's less than the retail price. There, I, I brought a ton. Um, there's a bunch under the table. If you think that some of these things might be helpful for someone, you're not you know, limited to one. Okay, that's the book table. Back in session three, still thinking individually and personally. You want to be thoughtful. You want to be running to the Lord to get his resources. Third, you want to start yourself thinking how to show mercy to your child. One of the primary things that God may do as you run to him is remind you of how he deals with you when you mess up. And so you can work with him then along that way by meditating on some of the things that he gives in scripture. For instance, you may want to think on that walk back as you're no longer as upset. You may want to think about the picture that he gives of himself as a father to the prodigal son. A son who wanted absolutely nothing to do with him but only used the father for what he could get from him. And the father's response is what? It's to watch for him. <laughs> day by day, longing and hoping that his son will come back think, why did he do that? So that he could finally give him a piece of his mind? No. <laughs> He's longing for the opportunity to forgive and to restore. 
That's a picture of God the Father with you. Not in the abstract. But that's what he's like right now in that moment when you've been so angry with your child you didn't know what to do with yourself. You may be tempted to explode on your child. God isn't even slightly tempted to explode on you. Longing to forgive and restore you. How else does God treat you in that moment? He does not think that threats, recrimination, bitterness, punishment, lectures, he doesn't think that's going to make a dent in your soul when your soul is hardened and you just don't want to parent anymore. Instead, he believes Romans 2.4 that it's his kindness to you in those moments that leads to repentance. It's his kindness that softens you when both you and he know that you don't deserve his kindness. It's the way he treated the nation of Israel. They went around his back. They played the part of the prostitute. They gave themselves to every God they possibly could. And his response over hundreds of years was to plead with them, to warn them, to invite them, to woo them, to call them, and above all, to be patient with them when they so richly deserve something else. Even after he sent his people into exile, Jeremiah expressed his confidence that God's mercies are what? They are new every morning. Even to people who had rejected and ignored him for hundreds of years. People who knew better, people who had been warned, people who deserved no mercy, yet they knew that they could find it in the midst of God's wrath because God had not utterly destroyed them. Why does God respond in those kind of ways? He's trying to foster relationship. He's not trying to destroy relationship. He wants a friendship with you despite all that you've done or will do. And so he responds in ways so that you can actually have a chance of believing that. It's not to shame you. It's not to make you feel guilty. It's not so that you then say, okay, God's been so good to me. It's my job to be nice to my kid. It has nothing to do with that. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. It's an invitation to you in that moment to live with such a full heart that you go, man, I have received kindness that I don't deserve. This feels amazing. I wish my child had some of this feeling too. And maybe they can have some sense of that through me. It's amazing to think that despite what I've done, that God still greets me each morning with a smile. That effectively he says, I'm so glad you're awake. I've been looking forward to seeing you. How can you show to your child some of that reality, some of the mercy that you've been given. How can what you're about to do help build a relationship instead of destroy it? Here's what I think of. I start looking for what I call the redemptive edge. God wants to use even ugly experiences created by your children to do what? To bring health to them, to bring healing to them, to bring a stronger relationship with you out of that. God delights in taking what someone meant for evil and using it for good, Genesis 50, 20. And that means that you have to keep asking him, how can this mess be turned around? <laughs> what can I do? What can I say that might help my child see God's purposes? How can he see mercy from the Lord? How can she see goodness? I'm going to argue that until you have a sense of how God might use this situation to bring goodness to your family, you're probably not ready to talk to your child. You unpack that just a little bit more. Since Jesus has come to earth, especially since he's been raised from the dead, absolutely nothing has to remain the way that it was. 
There is always some way that the Spirit can be involved to bring goodness and holiness in each situation now that the kingdom of God has come and broken into this dark world. Doesn't matter how bad the problem is. Doesn't matter how many times it's taken place. Doesn't matter who else is involved. Every single thing, every single horrible thing in the believer's life can be turned around beyond your wildest imagination. That's true, and I struggle to believe that that's true. And so very often I will find myself living pessimistically, believing that people around me are never going to be any different and that it's just hopeless to get involved. When you live that way, when I live that way, it's a denial of the gospel. It's functionally believing that Jesus is not involved, that he has no interest in being involved. Not sure how to reconcile that with him coming to earth in the first place. That means in times of trouble, what do I have to do? I have to work harder to believe that Jesus is involved at work. He's in this world. He's in my house with my children for their good. Which means that he is working hard to bring good into my family. That means I can't just throw up my hands and walk away. I'm not allowed to attempt through anger, through bullying, through manipulating to get what I want. Instead, I have to enter situations of, Jesus, what is it that you're trying to do before I open my mouth? Now, some of you might be thinking, that's unrealistic. <laughs> if I lived like that, I'd never get anything done. I'm not talking about something that's going to take you several hours. There are those times. They tend to be in the minority. I'll give you two examples. We were on vacation. My son, one son disobeyed me in the way that he was using a toy. It was literally not hyperbole, literally by the grace of God that he did not blind one of our other children. And I was furious because we'd already warned him about this and he just blatantly ignored us and did what he wanted to do. I was so angry at his disobedience, I was so upset at the danger that he put my other child in, I did not trust me. This is not the moment to speak, this is not the moment to act. And so I told him, I need you to sit on the couch, I don't trust me to be good to you, I need to go pray for a little bit. I went into my bedroom and I'm praying, what is it that I need to do? And I'm churning inside. And I'm just sort of clicking off the, the different options of all things I could do. And nothing seemed right. Do you ever have that feeling when, when you're praying and you think, okay, this is what, and, and, and you just have zero confidence that that's okay to do. That was what was going on. And that's when I realized my goal is wrong. I'm simply looking for the right discipline to hand out so this never happens again. I'm not looking for how Jesus wants to redeem this situation. I'm not praying about what God, what kind of good do you want to bring into it? I'm praying for the wrong thing, which is probably why I'm not getting any answer. I changed my focus. I said, okay, Lord, this is an opportunity. It's not one I wanted. This is an opportunity for you to break through, to use this to bring about your kingdom in the life of my son and in the life of my family. <laughs> it was really, it, it's one of those moments where you're like, really, that, that quick? And it's that right and it's that good and that's what I need to go do. Very serious time that I didn't make worse. There have been plenty of those other times as well. Times where I was not looking for Jesus to redeem the situation. I just wanted the problem to go away and so I acted Quickly, spontaneously. And while the immediate problem did go away, I created a bigger one in its place. And yet, even when you do that, those times can be redeemed as well. Another time with this same child, been pushing the line for a while, insolent, disrespectful, 
at best. And without thinking, I just lashed out and physically made him stop. But I also made things a lot worse. I wasn't looking to bring him to righteousness. I was angry, thoughtless, acted mostly just out of instinct, just wanted it to stop. And I was wrong. My anger did not produce the righteousness of God. Made things worse. And that time I didn't trust myself. <laughs> Once you fail that badly, you think, okay, you are the last person who now has wisdom in this situation. And so I told my wife, I told my best friend, I told an elder what I had done. It didn't take real long to do that. It didn't take very long to get real help from them. For me, the hardest part is always getting past that embarrassment of saying out loud, this is what I did. But once I did that, though, with their counsel, I had a sense of what I needed to do to re-engage with my son and sort out, first, the problem that I caused, and then, secondly, what he had done. You have to take time to think through what might it look like for Jesus to be involved in this situation. We get consumed with things that will not last we get consumed with what we're going to wear, with what we're going to eat, with the kind of house we live in, with the car that's going to break down in the next six months. These are eternal beings. <laughs> they have an eternal future, one place or another. And it's our privilege to enter into their worlds. We have to give them the time that we're willing to give to so much of the rest of that stuff that's just not going to, not going to make it past this life. Okay. Moving on. I want you to think here about now the actual interaction, building bridges with our kids. <laughs> I finished talking to a mother's group about parenting. One of the ladies came up to me and said, I see now I've not been very gracious with my children. So she says, if I were more gracious with the things that I say and do, things would probably work better at my house, right? I don't think she's unusual. But she missed the point of what I was trying to say. See, the point of parenting is not that things will work better in our homes. The point of parenting is not that if we follow certain steps that life will be a little easier and that things will run a little more smoothly. That's not the goal. It is what she wanted. And so she's looking for some kind of method. She's willing to do whatever to master this method, which will guarantee certain results, if she'll just put in the right amount of time and effort. She wants something that works, and parenting does not work in that kind of way. As a parent, your number one goal is what? It's to represent the parent. It's to represent the father to your children. And so the number one goal is not, you're not trying to produce a product in your house. You're not trying to produce someone who will do what you tell them to do so that your house works better than it used to. And so parenting does what? It requires you to invest time, <laughs> invest energy, without knowing for sure what the actual outcome is going to be. In that sense, parenting doesn't work. Does not promise a guaranteed outcome. Doesn't work. Some people don't like this word. It doesn't work. It woos. It invites. That's true of all relationships, but it's surprising when you realize that what, you're, you're going to pour yourself into your children, you're going to bend your life around them, you're going to sacrifice for them, change your world for them, and you have no guarantee that they're going to respond well? True. 
Having said that, however, there are some approaches that invite better than others. There are some ways of building bridges to our kids with our words that will create that atmosphere that stands a chance of a relationship being developed. So I'm going to talk about these under two headings. We talked about it earlier. Either developing the skills that encourage or the skills that speak honestly. So just a quick review. Encouraging is taking truthful speech and using it to love well. Truth that communicates love. Honesty is taking speech to, I hate this, truth well to communicate truth. We'll take them one at a time. First, encouragement. Learning to be an encouraging person. Let me start with a question. When should you encourage your children? I once counseled a man who needed to figure out how to talk to his wife. She had come across their daughter's journal earlier that day and read it. And as teens do, the daughter had not been super careful about how she talked about her mother. Uh, in the past, something like this would have set the mother off. She'd have taken her herd out on the child, some kind of blistering attack. You don't love us. We work and work to care for you. This is the kind of thanks we get. You should just get out. That was not unusual for the mother. This time, however, she didn't do that. She held her tongue. More than that, she stayed engaged with the needs of the family. She helped with homework. She made dinner for everyone, waited for her husband to come home so that she could get his thoughts on what do I do with what I found? It's real growth for her, and yet her husband is still concerned about what his wife had done. See, they have a disagreement as to whether or not you should read your child's diary. Wife obviously doesn't have a problem with this. He did. They had told their children, this is one good way to sort of work through your feelings. It's to write them down. That way the kids can learn to understand what they're feeling and start figuring out how do I handle that. Husband believes that if mom and dad tell you, write it down, and then we throw it back in your faces, we're punishing you for doing what we told you to do. You start to get a sense here. This is tangled life. This is normal. Happens in our house, my house every day. I'm sure it happens in yours. On a regular basis, you're handed situations and see you, in which you see this mix of both good and bad. Husband's truly grateful for the way his wife is growing. She fought against her pattern, flipping out on the kids. That would have just generated a new crisis. Would have been so easy to do. It was real work for her. And yet, if she never read the journal in the first place, this would not have been an issue. Especially since the journal's four or five months old and their relationship had been much better. And so it's confusing for the husband to sort out, what should I pay attention to? What should I say? And so I asked him, can we, can we just sort of put this to the side? I'll do this a lot. Can we put this to the side and get a bigger picture of what is taking place? He said, it seems to me that a lot of situations are like this. A lot of situations come with elements that are really good as well as things that we think are wrong and they are all blurred. And life hands you this tangled knot and then you have to say something. And you can't say something about everything. So you're going to have to point out some pieces and you're going to have to ignore other pieces. So how do you figure out which ones to focus on? I said to the guy, let's think about Jesus. A lot of times where Jesus will confront and rebuke in scripture. Times where he points out the misshapen pieces. He calls them evil and he directs the person to give them up. And I asked the guy, can, can you think of the kind of people that he normally does that with? We went back and forth a little bit, and the guy said, well, you know, it, 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 he, Jesus reserves his harshest rebukes for the Pharisees, 
for hypocrites, people who are stubbornly set on seeing themselves as righteous, they refuse to see. I said, yeah, I think that's right. On the other hand, I said, you know, the Apostle Paul opens his first letter to the Corinthians, Christians living in Corinth, and he just lavishes praise on them. Chapter 1, verse 2, he calls them saints. Verse 4, he gives thanks for them because of the grace of God that was given to them. Verse 7, he talks about how they've been enriched in their speech and knowledge such that they're not lacking any spiritual gift. And if he closes the book after verse 7, you'd be tempted to think, these are wonderful people. We should have them over more often. Then you read the rest of the book. You discover that they're a mess. Chapters 3 and 4, they have divisions and rivalries among them that have splintered the church. Chapter 5, they've tolerated a kind of sexual immorality that non-Christians wouldn't. Chapter 6, they file lawsuits against each other. They can't even figure out, chapter 8, how to think about food sacrifice to idols. You think, wait, these don't sound like people to whom grace has been given. These don't sound like people who are enriched in knowledge. They don't sound, Paul, like people you should say such encouraging things to, but you did. So I asked the guy, I said, what's the difference between the Pharisees and the Corinthians? Here's what I see. One group arrogantly refused to listen to godly counsel, while the other group, for all of their sin and all of their error, demonstrated that they, were, they had a softness in their spirits. You can go to 2 Corinthians. Paul commends the believers for how well they responded to his earlier letter, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 13. How they responded with humble contrition, how they responded with repentance. They're not a hardened group of people. And so Paul had no problem starting by encouraging them. All right, so I said to the husband, let's bring this issue back now. That's sort of the frame. What do you see in your wife when she talked with you about the diaries? Do you see hardness or do you see softness? He said, honestly, I see softness there. She responded with self-control. She continued to love our daughter. If that's the case... I want to lead with encouragement. There may be things to correct. Paul obviously did with the Corinthians. But he started front-loading the positives. You can realize here that if in each Christian there is, what, a, a combination still, right? There's still the sinful nature. We struggle against that. But it's still there. And there's the act of Holy Spirit at work sanctifying us. What does that mean? That means I expect to see both both in myself every day, both in other people. I'll probably see both in the same situation. That means that I can be just as effective by encouraging growth in godliness and growth in holiness. I can be just as effective by encouraging that as I can by confronting and rebuking sin. Actually, maybe I can be more effective. What are we as Christians? We are being perfected until one day, only what? Only goodness remains. <laughs> you are destined right now for never-ending eternal holiness. What 2 Corinthians talk, verse four, chapter 4 talks about as an eternal weight of glory that you cannot begin to wrap your mind around. That's your future. Sin, however, has a shelf life. We only wrestle with it where? This lifetime. It doesn't enter into the future. So when you engage God's children, where do you want to put your investment? 
Where do you want to put your time and energy? Do you want to deal with something that's not going to survive 100 years from now? Or do you want to invest your time in something that's going to be robustly alive trillions of years from now? I want to get better into urging God's people to grow into what God has planned for them. Clearly, this is only possible when the other person wants to live rightly. You can't encourage a Pharisee. That's not helpful to them. Working with someone who has no interest in holiness calls for a different approach. But if you're looking, if you're talking to someone who at least has some interest in godliness, some interest in working with you, practice becoming an expert and encouraging them. That's the antidote to criticism and sarcasm. Let me give you a metaphor to hang on to that might help flesh out what this looks like. Our middle son loved playing baseball, which meant I got drafted into helping coach his teams. The only problem with that is that I know next to nothing about baseball. My experience growing up, when I was around 12 years old, I decided I wanted to play Little League Baseball, which means that I was about six or seven years late. Everybody else had already been in leagues since they were five years old, and the teams were already picked, and so they put me in this league that was only for 12-year-olds. Everybody else already had a team. I did not have a regular team. I never got any practice, but I showed up for these special... 12-year-old league games, I will never forget my first at bat. (laughs) Standing at the plate, I forgot everything that I was supposed to know. I forgot to look for batting signs from the coach, not that I would have had a clue as to what to do with them if I had noticed them. I forgot to get out of the catcher's way so that he could throw the ball back to the pitcher. He had to push me three times. Three times because it was the easiest out of the night. I suspected To everyone in the stands, it looked like I forgot to swing. That's what stands out to me from my childhood experience of playing baseball. Here I am 30 years later coaching baseball. And they say, go coach first base. And I thought, okay, good start. I know where first base is. And so I head out and I feel very self-conscious. I have the official team shirt. I look like I'm in, I don't know what I'm doing out here. I discovered that coaching six-year-olds means I'm essentially a cheerleader. I smile at them as they step nervously up to the plate. I clap for them to let them know I'm pulling for them when they start to get anxious. I call out, here we go, here we go. You can do this. Calm down, calm down. It's okay, it's okay. Pick your pitch, pick your pitch. All the things that I have copied from everybody else. When they hit the ball, I yell like crazy, run, 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 come on, all the way through, good job. We do our celebratory high five ritual as they stand proudly on the bag. And then the most amazing thing happens. They start talking to me. They start rehashing what that experience of batting was like. I get to hear that before their parents get to hear that. Oh, coach, I was so, so, so scared. I, I, I knew I was going to strike out. It's coach pitch. You're not going to strike out. We'll hit the bat with the ball if it comes to that. Oh, did you see how well I hit that ball? It was going way out. And then the conversation starts to drift. You see that guy out there in the blue? They all have blue shirts. You see that? <laughs> it's a friend of mine. He plays on the other team. We sit next to each other in school. Hey, later on today, uh, we're going to go off and we're going to do this kind of stuff. Oh, coach, you know what? Next week, we're going to be on vacation. I won't be able to make any of the practices. Here, you want to see my cuts and my scrapes? What's going on there? 
I don't know anything about baseball. But these kids know I love them and care about them. Why? Because I talk to them and I encourage them in what they are doing. And from that experience of me, they open up. They think that I'm actually on their side. We develop a relationship. These are skills you can learn and develop to become better at encouraging. It's not rocket science. Encouragement is not beyond you or me. Nor is it something that we can think, well, that's just extra, that's icing on the cake. It powerfully affects other people and dramatically opens up relationships. Let me suggest two things you can do that will help encourage your kids with words. First, initiate with them. You take the first turn in the conversation. Use words to step into their world instead of waiting for them to step into yours. Here's another place where I'm absolutely amazed at God. Because that's what he does. He goes out of his way to enter into people's worlds. You just think about how he goes out of his way to greet people. That is not something that I expect of someone who is infinitely above me in every way. We intuitively understand that important people do not take the first step toward others. They don't introduce themselves. Someone else does that for them. What human dignitary, dignitary excuse me, doesn't have someone announce him or her? You don't expect a judge, an ambassador, a head of state to introduce him or herself. If they did, that would diminish their importance in your eyes. And so there's someone else, the bailiff, for instance, in court, who does that for them. All rise, the Honorable Judge Jenkins presiding. Or there's a musical fanfare that sets the stage for a dignitary's entrance. Then an announcement is made of this person's presence. Think about the State of the Union address. The House, the Senate, the special guests are seated. The Sergeant of Arms for the House of Representatives announces, Mr. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. And it's only then, at that moment, that the president actually begins greeting people personally and the nation as a whole. It would dishonor the president personally and the office in general not to introduce him, to require him to introduce himself. In the normal course of affairs, he cannot afford to take the initiative to greet someone personally, and so he waits to be introduced. And God does not. This is the one person in the universe who could rightfully consider himself the center of everyone's attention, and he will not act like it. Instead of presenters and fanfares that would distance him from his creatures, he gets personally involved. He is high and holy and takes the first step to reduce the distance between himself and his creatures. And he forges connections with people through simple contact he greets people, and as he does so, he draws them, draws you into a deeper relationship with himself. Think about some of those times where God met with people on earth. You remember what some of those people were like? Abraham. Abraham's what? He's a wandering nomad, far away from home. Steps into Hagar's world and greets her. Who's Hagar? She's someone that everybody keeps calling Sarah's slave. She's known as an occupation and a connection to someone else. Moses is an outlawed murderer. It's an outcast in the wilderness. 
At a time in their lives when practically no one knew them, no one acknowledged them, God met each one of these people and he greeted them by name, including Hagar. He let them know that they may be radically unknown by everyone else, but he knew who they were. He let them know that he had not overlooked them, that they were special to him, that they were worth his, his time and attention simply by how he greeted them. Greeting people well, I'm going to say it a little provocatively, greeting people well is part of what it means to live a spiritual life. You read through the New Testament, nine separate occasions we are told actively to greet people. It's an imperative command, you're to greet people. That does not include the larger number of times that we learn just from the example of other people who send their greetings. Paul makes this point abundantly clear in Romans 16 as he tells the Roman Christians to greet 33 different people or groups of people who are on his heart. Put all that together and you start to realize a lot of space is taken up in Scripture, Holy Scripture, with a fairly ordinary activity. One that you would also think, you know, that's an outdated cultural way of just what, it's closing a letter. I mean, seriously, when was the last time that you invested significant time to refuel your own spiritual energies as you're having your devotions by meditating on a greeting passage. Most of us find them irritating and we tend to skip them. They don't seem to rise to the level of things you would make sure to include in a holy book. But most of the time, the Bible is concerned with exactly these kind of things, with the mundane things of life. You would expect a book that is supposed to guide you to reconnecting with God. You'd expect it to have lots of what we would think of as spiritual information, right? I expect it to be chock full of uh, information on how to have a devotional time. Long list of instructions. I expect it to give the nuts and bolts of meditating or detailed descriptions of spiritual beings and spiritual places. And it has almost none of that. Instead, it spends a lot of time on what to eat, with whom you can have sex, how to pay your taxes, how you work, how you care for others who are less privileged, and how you talk. The Bible is not a magical book of formulas and instructions for having mystical experiences. Instead, God is concerned for real, raw, physical life, and so he tells you it is vitally important to greet each other. <laughs> To greet your children. It's an important spiritual activity that reflects how God deals with people. I can hear someone say, okay, but so what, really? How, how can such a mundane activity have any significant effect on my relationships? Let's consider a contrast. Here's a teenager who knows he's wanted by the way that his family greets him at night when he comes home. Here's a teen who's hardly acknowledged when he comes in the door, or who is instantly criticized for how he didn't make his bed, take out the trash, and left breakfast dishes in the sink. If everything else is equal, which young man do you think is likely to start hanging out with people who don't have good relationships with their parents? Greeting someone well is not a guarantee that you will keep this young man close to you, but it will give him a better reason to resist temptation, and to come home than this other guy has. Because the way that he's greeted tells you how he's valued. Work your way through scripture. You'll be amazed at how personal, enthusiastic, and welcoming your God is. 
you realize greeting people well is a God thing. So take words and be intentional about entering the lives of your children. A number of years ago, my wife re-entered the workforce, which meant that several days a week, I was the one who would be home for the kids when school was out. I knew I needed to create a welcoming atmosphere for them, but I also knew this was going to be difficult for me. This was when I worked from home before that was a thing. The rest of you now know what I do and what I really prefer. But working from home is hard, right? Because I'm so aware of what I need to get done for work, and I'm very distracted by the things in the house. And the, that combination means that I am tempted to slight the people around me, give them only part of my attention while I desperately try to get something done. Thankfully, I realized that trying to multitask when the kids got back from school would not communicate to them how much I loved them and wanted them. And so the moment that they entered the door, I told myself, put your pen down. You, have some, you, you know how you have to tell yourself things at times? Put your pen down. Close the computer. Turn your body so that you're actually looking at them. Give yourself 15 minutes. Just say, hi, it's so good to see you. I'm really glad you're back. How's the day? We'd hug, and with that time, we'd talk, and I would really listen. You have to make your body agree with what your mouth is saying. You can't throw how's your day over your shoulder while you're staring at a computer screen. If the TV, if a video game, if vacuuming, if a book is too important for you to interrupt, they understand that they're not what's really important to you. That's one way to encourage with your words, to communicate that your kids are wanted. Here's a second one. You can do this today. If you are someone like me, then you know how to be critical. You know how to pick out someone else's flaws, and then you know how to use words to draw attention to those flaws. You know how to point someone's failings out, out loud, how to publicize, and, um, publicize their failings and shortcomings for them, to anybody who's around. So if you're practiced at being critical, it's not enough to just stop talking. Because if that's all that you do, guess what? You're still a critical person. You're just a quiet critical person. And kids are smart enough to figure out that you're still critical. So you need to do something different. If you used to be really good at pointing out their feelings, you need to become equally good at pointing out their strengths, at pointing out their accomplishments. You can't stop sinning without moving at the same time in a positive direction. Part of change, then, means pointing out how good someone is, using your words to intentionally highlight their strengths, which might mean that you have to do the hard work of retraining yourself to actually notice their strengths. It was very important for me to realize that I, I was good at noticing the defects of people around, which meant that I needed to intentionally work at seeing other things other than those defects. How do you do that? Sit down and start thinking about your kids. Think about the last several days, the last week. What are the things that have sort of risen to the top that display their strengths? Things that show you their accomplishments. What are the things that you like about them that you've seen in the last several days? Now, obviously, that takes real work and real effort. If you're going to become an encourager in a critical world, it doesn't just happen. You have to put the time in. You have to what? You have to think. And then you have to go tell them, here's what I noticed. The first several times you do that, they're not going to know what to do with that. But after a while, people get used to that, and they eventually learn how to say, 
Thank you. Tell them what you like about them. Tell, talk to them about their gifts, their personalities, the things they do well. The antidote to being critical is to notice what is good and then say that out loud. But what if you sit down and nothing comes to mind? What if the only thing flooding into your mind are all of the negatives? What if you have slipped into this mode where the people around you never do anything right? What if you walk around with your radar on high alert, catching everybody doing everything wrong? That happens to me, and I start hearing myself. All I see are things wrong, and that's where I've had to pull back and say, that can't be true. People are not one-dimensional. They are not the sum total of their faults. Even those people who do not yet know Christ, they're still made in the image of God. That means they are not yet as corrupt and evil as they might be. That means I can't let myself believe the lie that they only do everything wrong. That means it's time for me to catch them doing something right. And so I have done this. I will start walking around the house intentionally looking for things that my family is doing well that I can then say something about. Sometimes those things are small. It's like noticing bringing attention to the child who comes quickly to dinner when she's called rather than taking forever and having to be called three times. Someone, it's simply calling out someone who brushes his teeth instead of fussing about it. Or saying to a six-year-old who moves something away from her baby brother because it might hurt him. Or it's pointing out that you just agreed with me. You don't have to say, instead of arguing about it. You can leave the positive. You don't have to end with the negative. Or you can point out the young person who does his daily chore, who empties the dishwasher, makes his bed, puts his laundry away, cleans the cat's litter pan, sets the table without being nagged or reminded. Nothing on those lists is earth-shattering. All of them are important. When people drive you to distraction by drifting along in this self-absorbed fog for days on end, weeks on end, Any movement outside of that is positive, which means you need to call attention to it. I've made a point to thank people for closing a cabinet door without being asked because my kids and I needed in that moment to know that I'm thinking about something other than finding you doing something wrong. It's not the size of the good that people do. It's that they've done something anything that pushes against that self-obsession that's fueled by a self-absorbed world. A home that focuses on what people are doing well has a very different atmosphere in it than a home that reinforces that nothing anyone does is ever good enough and worthwhile. Your kids will learn from you over time that you appreciate them, that you appreciate their efforts, and they'll understand that you you have eyes on them for good, not for evil. That you don't see them primarily as troublesome, never able to do anything right. That there are things that they should value, that they should work hard at developing in themselves. Look for those things, and then what? Use words to bring attention to them. All right, we're going to grab lunch now, I think. But let me give you just a couple questions. Maybe you want to talk about them during lunch. Start with God. How has God encouraged you recently? Then think about your spouse. How do you think God wants to encourage your spouse? What what does your spouse need to hear from you that's positive? 
And then what do you think God would want to say to your children to encourage them? So how has God encouraged you? How, do you, how can you encourage your spouse? And then what collectively do your children need from you? 